You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. What a blessing it is uh, just to be here in this way, to be singing together. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that time, uh, just together in God's presence. We don't uh, take that for granted, but we thank God. Um, uh, This morning, I get to share the next message in our sermon series through the New Testament book of Colossians. Um, Last week, we were in a portion of the middle of chapter 2. If you have a Bible, we'll be there again in Colossians chapter 2. Pastor Greg was sharing there, and he was emphasizing the absolute victory of Jesus on the cross and all that that means. The absolute victory that Jesus won through his death on the cross. Um, My community group was discussing the passage this week, and we appreciated that vivid language that Paul uses to communicate what he does in verses 13 and 14. So I wanted to read those verses again from last week, where Paul says, When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. This is the the simple and profound reality of what happened when the Son of God was crucified. Our debt of sin was not just paid back, it was destroyed, ripped up, erased. We're no longer spiritually dead, but we are eternally forgiven and alive in Jesus. Praise God. And I bring this up because this morning's passage hinges between what Paul has just said in the beginning of chapter 2, and what we're going to discover in the rest of chapter 2. So as I begin today's passage, 16 to 23, let's warm up together by saying that first word of verse 16. Therefore, let's say it, therefore. Based on what he's just said, pay attention to what he's about to say. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you. In regard to food or drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what is to come, but the substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. They don't hold on to the head for whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. And all of these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body. They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. This is the word of the Lord for us, and we give 
thanks for it. Have you ever been involved in one of those frustrating situations where you're trying to make a decision with another person or maybe with a group? Um, for example, you are talking with a friend and, and you have some time to spend together, which is good. Well, what should we do? Uh, I don't know. Maybe we should go to a movie. All right, let's... I, I would enjoy that. Let's go see a movie at the theater. Well, what time are, are the movies starting? So you go on your phone and start checking what's showing when. Okay, that's, um, that's that. And next thing you know, you're on YouTube watching trailers for all the movies, some of which you know you're not going to watch, but you see the trailer just to laugh anyways, or whatever. And then you're on Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic, looking up the reviews of the movies to help inform you on what you should watch, not to mention the general differences of opinion between you and your friend or what you might want to go see. And next thing you know, you've spent approximately one hour's worth of time, uh, one movie's worth of time, I should say, um, trying to decide just what movie to go see. And it kind of sucks the fun out of the room, doesn't it? It takes the wind out of your sails. And I've been in this situation before where you, you, you actually just give up because it's just become kind of silly. And it's like, I don't know, well, maybe next time we'll find something. We don't watch it. Or, or trying to decide uh, what to get to eat. I think this is uniquely special for couples. Um, <laughs> if you're going to get takeout or go to a restaurant, well, where should we go? That is a loaded question. Because it doesn't matter. I, I, I don't want to decide. You decide. But I'm, I'm hungry, so I, actually, I don't want to decide. I would rather prefer if you decided where we go. But don't pick the one place that you always pick, because you always pick it. Well, I thought it didn't matter where we go. It doesn't. I just, you picked. No, you. And it goes back and forth. Oh, my goodness. First world problems, by the way. <laughs> uh, but these, these situations are frustrating because of how silly they are, right? These are silly problems to have to argue over, and yet, in the moment, the menial issues, the lesser issue of trying to just choose, sidetracks you from the actual goal. Whether it's spending that time together at the movie or enjoying uh, food that is delicious and satisfying. Um, friends, when we fall for this kind of circular reasoning, we fail to do what actually matters. Right? We fail to keep the main thing the main thing. And this can happen in life, too, where we lose sight of the goals that we have, of our values, of whatever, our purpose, the things that actually matter. And we fail to keep the main thing the main thing. And instead, we go off on relatively inconsequential subplots which distract us or even detract away from what really matters. And we get lost or stuck in various situations in life. So remember how Paul begins our passage. He uses the word, therefore. In other words, if you heard, heard what he just said, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, then don't allow yourselves to substitute that, the main point for any of these lesser ones which we just heard. Christians should not be distracted by empty philosophies, by vain pursuits. And that's because our, our goal, our purpose, our mission, our identity, and everything else 
are all encompassed by the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus. He's the main thing. We've been given him. We've been given all that we need to be complete in this life and forever. And so there really is no need to waste time and energy searching and subscribing to other ideas to satisfy our spiritual hunger. Jesus is enough. So we keep the main thing the main thing. We do not substitute anything else for the place of lordship that only God deserves in our life. This is the heart of what Paul has been talking about in chapter 2, and today he's talking more about this. Um, Having said all this, apparently the issue for the Corinthian church is is bigger than simply being distracted uh, by secondary issues. Because verses 16 and 18, Paul refers to actually being judged or condemned by someone who insists on relatively unimportant practices and disciplines. So there's distraction, there's vain pursuit, but then there's another level where there's also potential for judgment and condemnation in your life. So friends, again, if we keep the main thing the main thing, if we know that we are judged by the standard of God's grace which promises us that we are forgiven and free, then never allow anyone else's voice to tell you otherwise, to judge you or condemn you, or cause you to question that salvation that was purchased on the cross by Jesus. So the big question is, who are we in submission to? Whose voice are we listening to, God's or somebody else's? Because again, if we're under God's grace, which the gospel clearly welcomes us into, then we should not listen to judgments and condemnations from someone else, whoever uh, they may be. Uh, Raise your hand if you've ever been to a hockey game. Most. If you haven't, highly recommend it. Um, It's it's a a good time. Um, If you have been to a hockey game, or really any other sports game, but hockey is sort of makes sense to me, you've probably experienced this thing where the fans um, harass the referees, right? (laughs) Um, Where the fans, perhaps you've even participated in in this harassment when you felt that it was necessary and helpful to do. Um, (laughs) This is what happens at, at hockey games. So imagine for a second that a player from the good team Uh, the one you're cheering for, you know the one I mean, Uh, they do something that's kind of questionable. Maybe it's a jab or sort of a dirty move or they trip someone or whatever um, against the other team. So, of course, the fans of the other team pick up on this and they start doing that thing where they're yelling at the ref. But the problem is the ref either didn't see it or he didn't care because they're not calling a penalty for that thing that our player did. So... Fans are upset, and they're screaming. So far, this is all normal hockey stuff. But what I'm about to say next, I guarantee you, you have never seen. (laughs) Imagine that while those fans from the other team are screaming at the ref about the call that he didn't make, the player on our team, who did the thing, um, looks around 
at all those angry fans in the stands. He's hearing what they're going on about and the things that they're saying. They're not very nice. So this player says, you know what? All these fans seem like really upset about what just happened. I actually kind of feel like the right thing to do in this situation is to give myself a penalty. <laughs> like, I know the ref didn't make the call, but the fans, the fans are really upset and it's getting kind of intense, so maybe they're right. I wonder if maybe I do deserve uh, to sit out. Shame on me. Lock me up. Give me the time in the slammer. That's what I'm going to do because the fans seem to believe that that's what should happen. Maybe they are right. To my knowledge, this is unheard of because it goes completely against what's considered normal in sports regulation. Because for better or for worse, what the fans scream at the referee doesn't matter unless the referee makes the official decision for a penalty. Why? Because no matter how loud you scream, fans are not in charge, the officials are. And if this is the first time you've heard this, you're welcome. <laughs> you, you might find that valuable in the future to know that what the fans scream doesn't affect the call. It's, it's, it's up to the officials, isn't it? But you see, when we give permission to anyone else to spiritually judge us, when we know we've been set free in Jesus, we're kind of like that player who goes to the penalty box on their own volition when the fans are angry, even though the ref didn't call a penalty. And I know uh, that God is not a referee. That's not what this metaphor is about. <laughs> That's where it ends. Um, I'm talking about surrendering to the judgment of, of lesser authorities, of, of other people, of people's opinions of us, rather than the one who's actually in charge, a.k.a. God. This is responding to the wrong voice altogether. And when we do this, we experience confusion and unnecessary difficulty in our lives. Now, I do want to stop there and make a side note because um, it kind of goes without saying, but I should say it anyways. Paul is not telling us to ignore good advice, to have stubborn hearts, to not seek counsel, or anything like that. So please never take your Christian liberty or your freedom in Jesus as an excuse to ignore wisdom or to be inflexible or a jerk. Because Paul is not referring uh, well, that to, to that at all. He's referring to those who would tempt us to take on a spiritual judgment and condemnation that is inaccurate, that is not ours to take. Because we're no longer under that, praise be to Jesus. Okay? So again, the main point is to never allow anyone to take that rightful place in our hearts, in our lives of eternal judge, other than God alone. Only God is worthy of our judgment. And his word through Jesus is grace, it is salvation, not judgment and condemnation. Galatians 5.1 is a passage that I think we've heard recently in our series, but it says... It's for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. So I want to quickly examine the, the, the examples that Paul uh, gives, because he lists a few 
in our passage a few specific areas that Paul sees as paths towards this kind of meaningless judgment in the Christian life. These are areas of pastoral concern for Paul to this church. And out of context, uh, they may sound a little strange and confusing, some of the things that he's talking about. But while we consider the implications of them, we'll see that Paul's warnings to the church are reasonable for the Colossian church and that they're also reasonable for us uh, as well. Okay, so we'll revisit the passage, of a part of it, quickly in, in three chunks. Oh, the first one, verses 16 to 17, where he says, Therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or the matter of a festival or a new moon or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what is to come. The substance is Christ. So first, Paul brings up some um, probably all uh, Jewish customs with concerns about uh, the festivals, food laws, and so on, practicing the Sabbath. Now, hold on for a second. If you've heard me speak before, you may recall that I have preached messages at this church encouraging us to consider engaging in Sabbath practices. But now what? <laughs> I need to redact what I've said or repent. Um, not so fast. Here we have to understand that Paul is not outlawing the practice of Jewish customs. Elsewhere, he talks at length about this. But rather, I would say he's instructing us to hold any custom that we may practice in a way that does not give or take away from our salvation in Jesus. Does that make sense? So for the early followers of Jesus, there were certain people who would accuse them and say, that if a Christian wouldn't also do the Jewish customs for whatever reason, then they were not right before God. And therein lies the issue. Uh, if you've read the Gospels, you have seen that Jesus has um, some of his own Sabbath practices and opinions um, that are aligned with what Paul is, is getting at here. So from Mark 2, we see Jesus on the Sabbath, going through the grain fields, and his disciples begin to make their way, picking up some heads of grain. They're feeding themselves. Uh, the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David and those who were with him did when he was in need and hungry? Which is a sick burn on the Pharisees, because not only have they read it, they've memorized it. <laughs> They know what he's talking about. So David and his men entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. They ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anybody to eat except the priests. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said, you see, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So then, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So the problem in Jesus' time and for first century Christians was that certain leaders made the Sabbath a serious burden to practice that was overly controlled, it was overly regulated, and it resulted in judgment if anybody broke the custom. So then along comes Jesus, and he breaks the custom he eats and, and allows his disciples to feed themselves. 
And then he explains. You see that, that the Sabbath was not meant to be what they made it into. It was meant as a gift for them. And that he, he claims authority over it. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So you see, for Christians, as soon as a practice like Sabbath or other types, even spiritual disciplines, I would say, would apply, as soon as these become the standard by which we measure ourselves or others, then we're embracing uh, the shadow, Paul calls it. It's not the reality. It's not the substance. That's Jesus. But we're, we're fixated on that shadow instead, which is wrong for us to do. So having said this, <laughs> the reason that I am a proponent of Sabbath rest is because I think that unlike the first century Jews, most modern evangelical Christians don't have a good uh, theology of work and rest, and so we can learn a lot from God's commandments for a Sabbath within the right application of it. So I will continue uh, to say God bless you as you seek routines for rest um, whether you call it a Sabbath or not, uh, but please let us never look down on others who don't participate in a discipline the same way that you do. Um, and never think that you are more loved or special to God because of a secondary issue like, like Sabbath or something else. Sabbath practice isn't bad, but using it to judge others is bad. Instead of giving and taking judgment, let us, in the work we do and the rest we take, always cling to not the shadow, but the reality, which is Jesus. So that's kind of the first group of things that he's concerned about for the church. Um, what about number two? Well, we find these in verse 18, and then he responds in verse 19. He says, Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. They don't hold on to the head for whom the whole body nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons grows with the growth of God. This is formatted in the same way as the last section. So here again... It would be wrong for us to assume that because Paul warns against the worship of angels, that instead we need to be opposed to the very idea of angels or demons or supernatural things that we can't explain at all. This goes against so much of what the Bible clearly explains to us about the spiritual reality of life. So yes, uh, we do believe that there are angels who worship and serve God. This is what the Bible says. But on the other side, it does sometimes happen that Christians become wrongly or inappropriately fascinated with anything that has a supernatural appearance to it, whether it's real or not. We can become disproportionately inspired by the things that have to do with angels and demons, which Greg uh, touched on last week, or, or miraculous visions or unexplainable events or whatever. And when this happens, Paul quite literally says that we become airheads. <laughs> well, and it's really ironic because he says, in this case, we're being less spiritual, not more. Right? There's a temptation to think that by focusing on 
so-called more spiritual things will be more spiritual. And he's saying, no, no, you're, you're using an unspiritual mindset, not a spiritual one. So our perspective as Christians towards uh, so-called spiritual and mystical ideas are all completely surrendered to the authority of, of Christ. And so we don't behave in a way that, that gives our focus, our attention, also known as our worship, to spiritual beings and experiences. What's more, we also tune out those who go on about these things. They're not worth your time. And this happens both in the church and Christian circles. There are people like this, but there's also people in, in the world who are fascinated by spirituality and other things and so on and so forth who would love to have your ear. But instead of listening and chasing after so-called spiritual thoughts, First uh, John 4 talks about this, and it tells us to test spirits and basically carry on. <laughs> like, we've, been, we've conquered them in the authority of Christ. He's greater than they are. So we don't receive condemnation because we do or don't practice certain spiritual disciplines or customs. We don't give or take judgment because we don't have these special, you know, spiritual experiences that some people have. And then the third example that Paul tells the church to not be sidetracked by is found in verses 20 to 23. He says, listen, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what's destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. Although there's a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they're not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. So by this point, I hope that we can already see how Paul's words here are not... It's not to tell Christians to never abstain from certain things when it's for a good reason. What if your doctor says to you to cut back on monster energy drinks? Do you throw this verse back at him and say, yo, I'm not listening to human commands or doctrines, so forget about that. I'm going to eat and drink whatever I want. Thank you very much. I'm free. <laughs> that is pretty foolish. Um, so again, Paul's concern is about the heart of the matter and who you're spiritually submitted to rather than what your, you know, what your diet looks like necessarily. Jesus fasted, the church fasted, there, there's vows of, of abstinence from certain things or whatever. Those things aren't wrong, but are those practices tools for us to somehow feel uh, more worthy before God? If so, then stop and check yourself before going forward because it isn't the practices that bring us close to God. It's Jesus who does that through his Holy Spirit. As we're talking about these things, I wanted to read also from Romans 14 because this, is, this isn't the only place that, that uh, Paul talks about uh, customs and practices and how to handle them. Um, so I'll read from 14, uh, uh, sorry, Romans 
chapter 14 because it's a slightly different take, but it's not incongruent with what Paul's been teaching us in Colossians. So listen uh, here to these verses from Romans 14. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Once again, the main point is apparently about uh, judgment. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know that I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Still, if someone who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you're no longer walking according to love. So do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be slandered, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So whoever serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and receives human approval. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace, what builds up one another. Do not tear down God's work because of food. Everything is clean, but it is wrong to make someone fall by what he eats. It is a good thing not to eat meat or drink wine or anything that makes your brother or sister stumble. So you see how whether he calls it a good thing or a bad thing kind of depends on the attitude of the person who's doing it and, and your motives, right? That's how this passage reconciles with what he says in Colossians 2, which is basically ignore that type of thing. Because in both cases, Paul is displaying not false humility, which he despises, but a true humility which puts God first and others before ourselves as well, right? Loving the Lord your God first and your neighbor as yourself. We see that in play. Paul is attempting to always lead other towards others towards Jesus Christ. So for him, if that means actually abstaining from something that someone else is because it would cause them to stumble, he says, fine, no worries. So again, when it comes to practices, things like fasting, then we always, always, always do them for the glory of God, right? And in this way, uh, we don't use them to judge others, to uh, judge ourselves, and so on. So I hope that in as we look at each of these examples that uh, Paul offers the church in Colossae, that we see it's pretty clear that we need to ask ourselves and we need to seek God about our motives, about why we do what we do, right? Our, our, our religious practices. You may not think of yourself as a religious person, but you are. We all are. We all do things in life for a reason. And I, I trust that we're here today because we're seeking God through Jesus. And that's a good thing. But why do we do the practices that we do? Do we use spiritual disciplines just to maintain our own feeling of control over things? Or are they surrendered for God to use? Are we trying to save ourselves from something that we feel insecure about by the things that we do? Or are, do we trust God in our faith as the one and only Savior? Because as long as we're cycling through those kinds of thought patterns, we're going to be prone to discouragement, to losing faith in Christ, to being disqualified, whether it's our own condemnation or from the voice of somebody else. 
I wanted to mention, I know uh, near the beginning of our series, uh, Pastor Greg was teaching on the problem of syncretism in, in the Colossian church, and we've probably mentioned it since. Syncretism is the, the, the problem or the practice, I suppose, where you don't adhere to one belief, but you bring in a, a variety of ideas in order to have sort of a DIY salvation um, or man-made, what, what does Paul call it? Man-made religion or something like that. That's what that is, right? So it's a temptation for the church. That's why he highlights it. He says, in your setting, do you feel secure in your salvation or are you worried and thus prone to um, the influences of others, whether they're uh, Jewish Christians and leaders who, you know, would be really serious about their ideas and practices, or, or maybe uh, some Greco-Roman ideologies that have to do with asceticism and punishment of the body and all these things in order to get closer to God, or whatever. So in today's passage, uh, we see not just syncretism, but the effects of syncretism, the results of syncretism, which is... Uh, Judgment. Okay? So this is why we are careful to adhere to Jesus as Lord and Savior, strictly speaking, and not continue to search elsewhere in order to add on to our faith and improve on it outside of what Jesus has done. Because if we do this, then we will find quickly that we are being judged, uh, no longer by grace, but by the standards that we've brought in. By the contestable regulations of whatever uh, man-made wisdom we've subscribed to and substituted for that of Jesus. So we can see that the problem with syncretism, there's multiple problems, but as a result, it doesn't bring us to a greater harmony but inevitably towards more self-judgment. So the, judgment, the judgmental practices that Paul warns against his church, Paul sees them as uh, tools of separation and segregation, of exclusion, not of unity, which Jesus provides. So again, while, while we as a church uh, pursue unity together and pray for that, we do so in the name of Jesus. There can only be one Lord, and the Christian faith places all of it on Jesus to be the Savior. Because again, truly, whatever we are searching for in this life, whatever we're chasing after, will wholly be found and satisfied in the presence of Jesus. So maybe uh, you are tired Jesus invites you to rest in him. Maybe you are uh, anxious and afraid. Jesus invites you to have his peace. You may be run down by the effects of sin in the world or in your own life. Jesus is the one who calls us to repent, to be forgiven, and to sin no more. Maybe you feel hungry and thirsty, Jesus is the bread of life and the living water.
It's in all of these things and more that we are welcome to believe and receive the beauty of, of Jesus and what he's done. To trust that we are completely secure in that foundation. And it is for this that we give him our praise and our love. 